to the Window, a podcast about dining in the South and beyond. I'm Robert Moss, the author of Barbecue, the History of an American Institution. And I'm Hannah Raskin, food editor at The Post and Courier. Well, today we want to do, I think we're going to call it the straw men and bad behavior edition of the Window, uh, since we're talking about a number of different things. Uh, we've been talking about bad behavior a lot in the restaurant industry recently. Uh, we want to dig into that a little bit. And uh, we may even have some bad behavior related to waffles as well. So we'll start <laughs> well, off with... definitely straw men. I don't know about bad behavior. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, we'll start off on a light note, and then we'll get a little, little more serious as it goes. So, Hannah, you had mentioned to me in an email that maybe we could talk about the Charleston Waffle because you're writing about the Charleston Waffle. And I was like, what? Because I've actually, this was a couple of years ago, stumbled across the Charleston Waffle, started researching it, and got really sort of stuck in, in stymied. So I'm curious <laughs> to learn what you've learned, and I'll share what Great. I, I went back to the archive and dug back my old stuff. Oh, so good. We'll talk about it's not just a Charleston Waffle, it's the Charleston the Waffle. The Charleston Waffle. So right. What have, how did you get into it? And what we, what I you came learn? across this in the course of researching one of my weekly sight unseen columns, which is the you know forgotten history of a for forgotten culinary history of a local address. Um, so in this case, I was once again at looking at the corner of Median Hassel Streets, which seems to have been where restaurants turned over and turned over and turned over. Um, and it was briefly occupied, I believe the dates were 1911 to 1913, by a restaurant called the German Restaurant. And the German restaurant served a lot of German food, um, but they also served waffles. Mm -hmm. And in fact, their ad slogan was say waffle to your waiter. Uh, and they were like the original waffle house. And so 10 cents bought you um, a stack of Charleston waffles with, with maple syrup. Um, Germany has its own waffle tradition. Mm -hmm. So at first I thought maybe it was, you know, related to the other cuisine they were serving. But they said the world-renowned Charleston waffle. Said, mm, you know, a lot of restaurants make that claim. Yep. You know, our renowned, you know, sea trout or whatever. Um, so I started to do the necessary research in order to write the line, which we would all write as reporters. That, although there is no evidence. that the, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, had my, I had that all keyed up about, you know, the no evidence. But I was like, oh, my gosh. There it actually is, is world evidence. Famous. <laughs> it is world famous. Now, here's where I'm going to be very curious what your research shows. So here's what I was able to find. It appears to me that this was sort of um, a, not a, not phony, not a sham, but it was sort of a, um, a, what do you call it? It was like a little intramural battle between mm -hmm. Charleston and Anderson, South Carolina. And the editors of the paper in one town started putting down the waffle in the other town. Yeah, I definitely it, found it. This is what I found. These are almost like, uh, it's like a Twitter war. I thought of it like a hundred years battle. ago. Yeah, yeah it really. It's, and they're, they're, it's your rat waffle is so flat. They're <laughs> all. Well, I count as some of them. Many of them are under 140 characters. They're one, those tiny little paragraphs, and every week they'd be going back and forth about <laughs> how indigestible each city's waffles were. Right, and the the specific, specifically the Charleston waffle is. Overly crisp. That that seems to be what 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 they what they um, catch on as as, and so now help me out here because I couldn't find anything prior to this sort of built up as you call it Twitter war. I, I was almost as flummoxed as yeah. you were the first time I looked into it because I found all these back and forth paragraphs. Right. And to provide a little context there, this is the era of what they called the paragraphers in in newspapers, which literally a newspaper would have this column that would be nothing but one one or two sentence paragraphs, often 
lifted from other papers and reprinted, so so their version of retweeting. There are sarcastic, snide little comments, and, little, little jokes, and we very bad jokes. It, very bad jokes. <laughs> and and this is a function of printing technology at the time, yes. is you often had just a little bit of space left to fill yeah. because this wasn't very long ago. Many of, of you who've worked in, in papers <laughs> may remember when you actually had to, you know, line things yeah, up. You needed three more inches of copy, exactly. literally. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Well, We'll start off with the jokes because the, the the thing about the jokes is that they're absolutely terrible. Terrible. They're just awful. I'll, I'll read a few of them. This is from the Anderson Mail uh, on October thirty first, nineteen ten, and it's called "Better for the Stomach" is the headline. And then the, the one sentence: We have an idea that a Charleston waffle would be a dandy thing with which to patch an automobile tire. Yes, that seemed to be really, and that, that it that's, really took off from there. That's, that was, that's about as good as they get. Yeah, too, and unfortunately. so Charleston fires back and <laughs> says something along the lines of the Anderson waffle. Uh, something is not fit for consumption. Or, Actually, says the I'm, 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 this is off top of here. my head. Yeah. yeah, the Anderson waffle defies consumption. Defies consumption. Is what the yep. Evening yep. Post yep. Yep. said. I mean, so again and again, what you see is they they liken the Charleston waffle to a doormat. Yeah, um, a doormat. The Birmingham News. Birmingham News says. The waffle is equally adaptable for a chest protector or a porous plaster. We, what we need is a shin guard. How about it? Exactly. There are yeah. a lot of jokes about it being a weapon, about it being, um, you know, don't they say, you know, baby could teeth on it. Yeah. It is I mean, clearly a crisp, hard waffle. That's okay. what they're well, implying. Well, I've got a little more detail because okay. I turned up more. Okay. It seems it started off as a serious thing. The Charleston waffle got a little flurry of national attention. And from there, uh, the paragraphing jokes began, probably because of all the cities in South Carolina being jealous of Charleston and and a little back and forth sniping. And actually, that's not uncommon. There's like um, all kinds of jokes about Charleston in general in all these papers. At that time, Charleston, the the holy city, (laughs) which is actually the wicked city because it was viewed – especially in the upstate of South Carolina, it's this sort of very sinful place in the coast where everybody drank all the time and, you know, just just lived it up. Uh, it was a lot of tension between the old money power, mm-hmm. former power down in Charleston and the sort of the, the, the farmers up in the upstate. So, it, you know, Benjamin Pitchfork, Ben Tillman, uh, the governor, just hated Charleston. That right. was, it, was just, it was just a big back and forth. So there was, there was a lot of that was going on. In October of 1910... Right, they were already proclaiming the superiority of the Charleston waffle. Is that what you're looking at? Yeah, yeah. It somehow the Charleston waffle got spread around newspapers as this, this wonderful example of a southern uh, southern dish. The earliest I could really find it was a column in October of 1910, which is a, a column called Woman in Life and the Kitchen, mm-hmm. which ended up getting syndicated. So I found it in the Norwich Bulletin in, in Connecticut, yep. Omaha World Herald, Macon Telegraph in Georgia, Bay City, Michigan, the G- Globe in Kansas City, and it's a recipe. Oh, okay. So I found the recipe. It's called. It, it was. It's actually in a feature called Southern Hot Breads. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, the Charleston waffle recipe starts with a pint of flour. And one pint of sour cream, hmm. three eggs, and one teaspoon of soda. Uh, those are the ingredients of these delicious dainties. So it's half sour cream and half flour. So it must be like just this super rich batter. Really rich. Yep. And it says, uh, which go with plenty of bit butter and a meat breakfast, ham and egg, sausage, or boiled blood pudding. Oh. Uh, is what it's called for. So these, you cook them quickly on iron, uh, on hot irons. They must be a rich brown color. So... This was apparently a very extra rich 
waffle. Very was, rich. But mm-hmm. that's not what it takes flack for. It takes flack for being crisp, not well, rich. Well, not crisp. It takes flask, flack for, for, for being indigestible, which is a little bit different. So that I, is more like rich. But the idea of it being a doormat and a missile, yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe was, if you cook them too long, they get rubbery. I, don't, I, now it, I, have, I just found this one over yeah. the weekend. I have not had a chance to try this well, recipe. because I'm Because, right, it has soda. I mean, it sounds like that is something that sounds not hard, not crisp necessarily. It seems like that would rise. That's just a lot of sour cream. It's a lot um, of sour cream. Mixed in, three eggs, and then a half teaspoon of soda. So very tiny bit of soda. You're right. Um, it's not, there are yeast waffles. It's, these aren't a risen waffle. So mm-hmm. it sounds like it's a very rich one. And it's not meant to be eaten by itself, but alongside a he- like a heavy meat. Well, that's meal. interesting, too, because when they write about it in the Charleston papers, they always talk about eating the waffle with shrimp in the morning. Like shrimp and grits, yep. shrimp and waffles, or like, you know, waffle and chicken. Might make sense. So my yeah. speculation is that it sort of got picked up all over the country. And everyone mm-hmm. was talking about the wonderful waffles in Charleston. Of course, the people in Anderson just couldn't deal with that. Right, right, <laughs> so right, So they right. had to take Charleston down a peg yep. or two. And then we get this long running. And this went on until like, the, you know, for years, <laughs> several years of back and forth Years jokes. and years. <laughs> and whenever it wasn't mentioned, someone would mention it again. Yes. I mean, it was just, it was too much fun. People couldn't resist it. But what was interesting, again, tell me if this if this is what you found. Um, it sort of disappears in the early 1920s, mm-hmm. um, right around the time that there's a big push for the electric waffle iron. And you also see at that time advertised a lot of different, you know, the different oils you would put into a waffle, um, different mixes are being advertised. And it, it occurred to me, I mean, it does seem like there was probably a homogenization of waffle style. I styles. didn't really think about that, but I guess up until the electric waffle iron, so at the point this came out, you would have been, it was the iron, but you would put it on a hot stove, stove. like a flame over yeah. a stove and then flip it over on yeah. On multiple sides. Yeah. So. And, and so I do think so. I think, it, again, it, it just like the, the waffle war to begin with, it comes back to technology. I think they lost what was distinctive about the Charleston waffle once they gained the waffle iron. Now, Robert, what year was that recipe again? The recipe was 1910, in, uh, 1910 October 1910. I can't find anything before 1910. Mentioning nothing. waffles in Charleston. There's yeah. nothing. I mean, there's one. So I think one of the papers here ran a poem at one time saying how great a waffle was, but it wasn't. It, it wasn't locally. Like it was something special waffle in here. It wasn't. No, waffle. I'm sure it was a syndicated thing, like yeah. everything else. I mean, waffles obviously have been served in this country for hundreds of years. So that you know, so yes, there was an acknowledgement of waffles, but I saw nothing about a Charleston waffle. In now, Char- yep. What I was going to ask is, do you think in do you think sour cream in 1910 is the same thing that we go to the store and buy today? It would probably be a little bit different. Um, it, it would truly be cream that was that was soured. Yeah, yeah and they um, should have had lots of it at a German yeah. restaurant. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I don't know. What's interesting, I, I was surprised about the German restaurant because I didn't come across that that, okay. that restaurant. I came across another one mm-hmm. also oh, run. Oh, there's Riddick's. Or Riddick's. Yes, yeah. Riddick's. Yep. I came across that one, which uh, is the— Riddick's kept a guy in their window. Yeah, that's <laughs> what I was going to say. I found this yeah. ad that says— uh, and this is the ads like from. It was like nineteen twenty. Nineteen twenty, yeah. It's like after the the craze. Yeah, if I ever run Jeopardy again, I hope this is a category. <laughs> I really got it down. Watch the waffle man work in our windows. Yeah. So apparently, they put the guy up front with his waffle iron. Yeah. So passerby can well, watch and, him make waffles. And we should mention part of the story too is at least the Charleston newspapers report that a, a restaurant has opened in New York at one point serving Charleston yes. waffles, right? And so I cannot find in the New York press where if if this place existed or how you know how much business. 
business it actually did. But, but it was actually at the Women's Exchange. That's right. So that's right. That's right. Because they they said the recipe came from mm-hmm. Mrs. Russell Sage, who I assume is the Russell Sage we know from the Russell Sage Foundation. <laughs> it's a very yep. uh, New York financier. Yeah. It was it was uh, Russell Sage's wife, yep. second wife. She was apparently born in Syracuse, New York. I wouldn't say is she from the South or something. I She's couldn't. Not. I didn't spend much time on it, but couldn't find any real connection she this had. Although it was nineteen late nineteen eleven when she started advertising a Charleston waffle for sale in New York. <laughs> and I mean, I'm sure exchange. if we looked, anyone who lived in that tier of Manhattan society, I'm sure she, she could have certainly been to yep. Charleston. It would not have been yeah. And, and the recipe had been in the papers uh, more than uh, uh, a year before. Right. The women's exchanges because Charleston had one as well. Right. Were really interesting. But it was sort of a philanthropical venture. Right. That it would serve food and raise money for good causes. So it's the kind of thing that a society woman might do with her, you it, know, her, her spare time to, right. to do a good cause. And maybe she started serving Charleston-style waffles. It was really, as we were transitioning restaurant space from an all-male space to kind of a mm-hmm. co-ed space, this really plays an important role in a lot of cities, again, just for wealthy white people. But it's, you know, they they had not, it was, it was seen as below women uh, before that point to, you know, serve and sell food. And they did this, as you say, um, in the guise of a charitable organization. It was. I'm not saying they took the money, but um, so it wasn't like a, a full on you know chain restaurant. But it was a it was a restaurant run by women, which is cool. Um, anyways, they served the waffles, and initially the Charleston Press responded very positively, thinking, "Oh, you know, the more Charleston waffles in the world, the better the world will be." Essentially, um, but then they they print a column saying that. It is, you know, it, it, what a farce that Mrs. Russell Sage thinks that you can make Charleston waffle just because you mix it in a yellow bowl. I, it, that's probably true. It probably doesn't make any difference if you mix it in a yellow bowl. But it does remind us um, of that in Charleston, there's awful, almost always a racial dimension to stories. Yep. And they say it's not the color of the bowl, it is the color of the person who mixes it, and that a Charleston waffle must be made by an African-American cook or it is not a Charleston waffle. So it's it, it's interesting. They even in defending that. I mean, this is so, so much of the ugliness kind of seeps through here, where they talk about George Washington came to Charleston, had the best waffle of his <laughs> life. Again, this is not recorded anywhere else. He had the best waffle of his life, and then bought the person who made it. And, and, uh. and so, but I, I do say <laughs> it's, it's true though. You, that, you like, can't open up the you, lid on it, any it, story in the South. Yeah, yeah, and so I just think it's important to mention that part of it that it's not. You know, it is. This really is literally fun and games. Uh, but it, it that that dimension is always. There yeah. too, probably not not at all coincidentally. The the recipe I was talking about, which is the very first trace, uh, it's about Southern quick breads. The last line of it is, and I won't even read it because it's in such heavy dialect. dialect. It's yeah. like as the black folks put it, they they're mighty good in the right. on a cold morning. But I won't even try to right. do it in dialect. So right. you, yeah, you can't even mention the Southern delicacy without like having some demeaning stereotype. <laughs> <Right>. Always <laughs> um, has to be there. Yeah, before you get to the end of the paragraph, which yeah, is a, a, amazing. Um, but it is interesting, and I I. I I, I would love to taste a Charleston waffle. I'm well, I want to go back and and sample this recipe. Yeah, and, and it's only a few ingredients. So it should oh, be you're gonna make easy. it. You should yeah. bring them in. I'll make it. Maybe I'll do that yeah, next time. That'd be see great. How, see how it goes. I, I I just discovered it over the weekend, so I didn't have time to get my act together and buy enough sour cream. Now, will you <laughs> to, be making it over an open flame? And no, your, I, I have electric <laughs> waffle iron. So, yeah, see, uh, yeah, that's know, my, I, I don't that's have any way to do it on a flame. I, hmm. We may have to bring some local historians. And not that you are not a local historian, but I well, feel I don't, like I'm not. A, definitely not a material culture. Material culture I do person. not have any. I, I'm wondering if I have an old someone. cast iron frying pan from before uh, World War II. There's right. My grandmother's. But other than that, I've got nothing. We'll right. see. We'll see. All right. <laughs> we'll work on this one. 
though I, I will have to throw this out to Charleston restaurateurs. This is this is a great opportunity to bring oh, back boy. the Charleston waffle. This would be a great Please one. Please don't put chicken on it. Just just do a Charleston waffle. Well, chicken's just what the Northerners thought. It's really supposed to go with shrimp. Right. Yep. Do a shrimp and waffle. Right. A shrimp and waffle. And you, uh, your story sells. You could you could equip your servers with this great story about this a oh. hundred year century old Charleston delicacy, famous around the world, lost and rediscovered. So I'll, I'll throw and, that and one they, out there. And they did say. I don't know if you came across at one point. So many tourists were coming to town yes. for the Charleston <laughs> waffle. Right? They had to set up. They were like street carts uh, selling Charleston waffles. So. It seems like a flash in the pan to so to speak. So to speak. Uh, <laughs> only allowed a decade because by 1920, Riddick's was still serving them in 1920. But I think the, I'm the telling you, passed. it's the electric waffle iron because there, there is they, they advertise there's going to be some sort of fair or show, and one day it's like Waffle Day where everyone who's selling <laughs> electronics has to show what it can do for your waffle. And if you can't, you know, in general electric and ever are showing off their latest and greatest in waffle technology. And I am telling you, that is what killed the Charleston waffle. All right. You, hear, you heard it here first. <laughs> it's probably the last time too. <laughs> okay. Well, that was sort of the good bad behavior, the fun the fun bad behavior. Um, you know, to take things in a little different direction, I think we, we need to talk about it. It's certainly timely, not all across the country right now with like, I guess you could call it the Me Too movement or all the, the recent outrage and, and sort of re- reaction against bad behavior uh, in the workplace, uh, specifically sexual harassment, uh, but also harassment in general and just inappropriate conduct. People are starting to stand up and, and not take it anymore. We uh, had talked a while back. I think we had a, the gloomy show where we figured, you know, we ha- weren't hearing much else in the restaurant industry. Yeah, this is after, I think, the John Besh story, Brett Anderson broke down in New Orleans back in the fall. But um, I guess, unfortunately or fortunately, because it's good to get it out of if it happened, it's good to bring things to light. But uh, more stories have been coming out since then. With a big story with uh, Mario Batali, Charlie Howell, Ken me with the Spotted Pig, uh, and, and many others have come out. And then just recently here, it's actually a story that's still going on as we speak. You you helped break a story here in Charleston about a local uh, restaurateur who's I broke the story. Yeah, sorry, helped break the story. <laughs> well, then with the help of the employees Correct, who came to you, I but helped, you broke the story yes, you're uh, right. with, with employees that came to you. Correct. Um, I think just to maybe sum that up. Uh, number of ex-employees came forward, many of them off the record anonymous, to talk about uh, Randall Goldman, who's the CEO of Patrick Properties Hospitality Group, which runs a number of restaurants here in Charleston. They came forward to- One restaurant. Oh, number what? of properties. Oh, they had, I guess they have different properties. So, yeah. So, let me just back up on yeah, this. So, back, yeah, fill me in on that. Patrick Properties Hospitality Group was created by Charles and Celeste Patrick in 1997. Um, Randall Goldman was immediately- Thereafter, hired as their CEO, he had been a personal chef to the couple previously. They have built the company since then. I'm not exactly sure how many properties they had at the start, but they currently have the American Theater, with the people in Charleston may know best from the outside because it has mm-hmm. a marquee on Upper King Street that's very prominent. Then and they, it's, these days, it's not a theater. It's a sort of private event space. Lots correct. of things happen there. Yeah. At one point, they did run it as a theater. Um, but as you say, now what Patrick Properties is known for is running just the glitziest event. So they also own the William Aiken House, mm-hmm. also on Upper King. So that's really the best spot in Charleston to get a glimpse of a really fancy wedding um, just behind the, you know, behind the gate. Um, they have Lowndes Grove Plantation, which mm-hmm. is where in the past the James Beard Foundation has made its announcement of 
uh, semi-finalists for its big awards. Um, it's it's beautiful. I'm trying. There was also we've had a number of food events come through to make use yep. of that to make use of that property. Um, and until recently, they had the restaurant Fish. They closed that in order to sort of reconceptualize it. Um, it will reopen under the name of Parcel Thirty Two um, next week, this week, next week, somewhere within the coming month. Okay, so one only one. Only one Pure restaurant, restaurant, but several venues that but are prominent. major in player yep. in the wedding uh, industry, which in Charleston is no small thing. Yep. And um, a number of ex-employees came forward accusing Goldman of a range of things, a, a minimum of inappropriate behavior, things that made them feel uncomfortable and sort of very in, you know, right. odd so let's, things. Let's, I mean, let's be specific yep. about the thing that he allegedly did, according to the employees. I think this is important. Um, I've had a number of readers contact me to say none of these things are crime. What he is accused of doing is getting much too close, positioning his body much too close um, to people in their estimation to make them feel uncomfortable, making comments um, about people's appearance, either what they wore or their body type that also made them uncomfortable. Um, And he's furthermore accused of sending late night text messages um, that had sort of similar content allegedly. So, again, I've heard from a number of readers saying that is not a crime. Um, I want to make clear we are a newspaper, not a court. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, I really can't say whether it's a crime or not. I agree that it would be if, you know, from my non-legal position, it would be difficult to say what crime this could mm-hmm. be classified at. The reason we felt that it met the bar for newsworthiness is, you know, this company has employed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. And the eight employees we spoke with at that time, I've spoke to more since, um, including four who gave their name on the record, felt that it was a hostile work environment for women. So, again, not necessarily saying there was anything of criminal nature or intent, but saying that it was a place that women did not feel comfortable. And I thought it was significant that two prominent employees came out on the record uh, about what happened and their willingness to to discuss it. Sounds like they, you know, it was not an environment they enjoyed working in and were very, very happy to to leave it. Right. And I think you're probably referring to Nico Romo, who was the most prominent executive chef. Yeah, yeah, the executive chef at Fish for a very long time and recently opened a new restaurant called Nico. This is important because in some ways it liberated people to talk about Mm -hmm. what had happened because Nico, at least as they tell the story, had always sort of taken care of them. So now he was able to offer them a job, which is what really matters. You know, many of the former employees I spoke to they said, well, I didn't come forward because I needed a job. And that's and that's what, you know, not just this story, but all the stories, one of the threads that run through them is people feel like they can't come forward or say anything, not only because they may lose a job they have now, but the, the industry is tight and they're afraid they'll that's, get blackballed somewhere else that won't be able to work. Right. Uh, they'll get, you know, and, retaliated against far outside the, the specific restaurant they're working in. Right. And, and I think this probably held true with the Besh group and with, you know, Freeman and, and, and Vitaly. These are really prestigious places yep. to work. And so, yes, you could get another job. But in the case of Patrick Properties, what I've been told many times is if you're selling wedding, you know, if you're a salesperson, this is the most money you could possibly make, you know. So, <laughs> it's, it, you know, why should you have to leave if someone else is, you know, allegedly making you uncomfortable? Right. So the Goldman story is still unfolding. It's, you know, it's just still very much happening. So we, we, rather than digging too much into that, I thought a more interesting question would be, Okay, so how as diners, you know, should we respond, and particularly how should food critics respond to this, you know, because now we have a lot of high-profile people 
again, they haven't been charged necessarily with crimes. They may not even been doing done something that they could be charged. Correct. For or as or a in, crime. in the case of what we were just discussing, they may not have admitted any yep. of the behavior. Yep. And in fact, that's been true in a number of the cases. They have stepped away from their mm-hmm. companies. Um, they've gone to you know spend time with their family, but they may not have necessarily said. Again, it it changes yep. by situation. Everyone's different. Some Everyone's of, different. some have issued apologies. Some yep. have been. Totally recalcitrant, yep. not un- uh, totally unapologetic, and yep. say they've been unfairly accused. Yep. But you know, when that happens, what what should a diner do? And this is sort of, I think, t- tagging onto our recent uh, discussion of the whole controversy over convenience fees and uh, uh, Zabal biscuit here in in Charleston. What w- what should you do? Well, so it, it seems that response you really have two choices, and I'm sure there are nuances you can find. But the two major camps on this is one, you keep going because. Those poor employees, like, you know, if you want to show the support for them, like the last thing they need, we just talked about them making money. They need to keep making money. And, you know, if you feel like a pastry chef has been sexually harassed for eight years, why compound her troubles by, you know, helping to put a restaurant out of business, theoretically? So that's one one thought. You absolutely go and you support those who were not involved and may even have been victims. The other thought is you don't go, that there are places that you either know or suspect have not engaged in this sort of behavior. And so those are the folks who deserve your money and attention. And we we may come back to that question, I think, Mm -hmm. because we'll go to the more immediate question, which is of, or not more immediate, but maybe a question that occurs even earlier, which is the the professional food writers, the the restaurant critics, who oftentimes help shape and steer people to to where to go. What should they do in these these situations? Uh, A while back, Craig LeBan, who's the uh, food critic for the Philadelphia Inquirer, wrote what I thought was a a thought-provoking piece, though I, my thoughts may not be the same as his. It's got it got me thinking a lot about, and it, you know, he, he laid out some of the recent events with Batali and Friedman and others, and then asked the question: What is the critic's role and responsibility in all of this as the gatekeeper of culinary glory, as he puts it? And I think that's the ultimate question. Um, I was very surprised how much heat Craig took for that piece, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, it was seen, it was depicted by some people who are very strongly of the you do not support camp um, as really just turning a blind eye yeah. to something that we all know about. I think Craig was coming from a real newspaper background. He has worked at the Inquirer for a long time. He's a newspaper guy. And I think he understands that we don't always know, you know, and and we can't always know. And because to know something, for instance, um, with the story about Randall Goldman, um, that took about four months of reporting. If you were, if you had to do that for every restaurant you went to and every person involved in an executive level, you will never see a review again. Now, if you have heard something that is worth reporting, I yeah. think it is, you know, incumbent upon you to alert those who are in a position to report. I mean, those in your newsroom. Or, you know. But I think there was a point in that piece where Craig asked rhetorically uh, something about like, how do we know this? How do we know that? Right. And I think the answer that he didn't give is too many food writers know that because too many food writers are behaving like gossip columnists and not like journalists. Because if you take your critical responsibility seriously, you shouldn't be knowing that stuff because you're not hanging out at parties with them. Yeah. I think there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of feeling of guilt from like the eater people who have said, oh, we're not doing this. Because they were part of it. Yeah. They knew this. Those of us who are critics who really don't socialize and fraternize didn't know. Yeah, I think that's an ang- a, a definite part of it. Um, and 
I, I think I, I sort of that LeBan people really got me thinking because I think it, it sort of along he was making good arguments along the way. I think at a certain point he crossed over into what I'd I call the straw man argument, mm-hmm. which he asks like, are mere concerns all it takes these days to cross uh, a candidate off the list? And then toward the end he said something like. Um, to it, this is a, toward the end. It's also a crazy notion to suggest that a professional diner, in the course of their normal duties, can somehow look through a plate of heirloom carrots and swirling sauces to see beyond to a dark heart of the soul. Um, yeah, I'm, a, I'm a critic, not a clairvoyant. I think that's setting up a little bit wrong. I don't think we're asking our critics to go into restaurants and, in the process of sampling the food, also do like a thorough background check and really dig into the moral character of the restaurateur, etc. I, I think it's a little different. This is like, what if you go into a restaurant where something's already known about somebody? Right. Um, I think there's a Paul Key in. But I don't know because Austin. I think in his in his piece he is talking retrospectively. He has mm. some you know residual guilt for having given a bunch of beans, which is what they hand out in New Orleans <laughs> where he used to work, uh, a bunch of beans to John Besh. Yes, that's and I, true. so I think that's where his clairvoyance comes from. I don't see him in that piece. It referenced the question that you just brought up, which is what do we do when we already know? I think he's saying, what is our responsibility to find out? I think so. But where he um, where he goes is, mm-hmm. uh, I think, an interesting place for, for uh, a food critic where he he's, says he's spent his career trying to keep personalities out of the equation yep. in his restaurant reviews and that he thinks that the judging of a restaurant or a chef on anything other than the dining experience itself is a dodgy pursuit. Mm-hmm. So he's sort of, he's taking the line, he ends up saying, basically what you should do as a restaurant critic is you go into the restaurant, you eat, you have the dining experience, you have the food and the plate, and I suppose that also includes the service, the music, the atmosphere, and if you leave with a great dining experience, then all the rest shouldn't factor in. Mm-hmm. To me, that that that's almost like the old new criticism school of lit- literary criticism back to right. my, my right. literary days, which was you deal with a text just... Right. What's between the covers of the book itself? You don't worry about the historical context of the author's biography or anything else. But right. um, that, to, to someone who's historically it, minds me, that, that falls flat the same way. If you know something about a restaurateur going in, right. that's part of the experience. That's part of the experience. It's part, <laughs> yeah. of, it's part of the critic's experience. It's part of the diner's experience. It's part of everyone's experience. And so it's very strange to behave that's in a way that something doesn't exist when everyone else has right. acknowledged it. I think. I mean, I think what's interesting about about food criticism is food is art. It's art in real time. And I think that's what's tricky It's compared mm-hmm. to like scrutinizing like a Woody Allen movie. It, the harassment that may be occurring is occurring on your watch. It's yeah. not just like, oh, I heard that guy had done some things. He's doing those things right now in the kitchen while he's making your food. So you're a lot closer to that. I mean, not just physically, but like spiritually. You're so much closer to the abuse than you might be with another art form. Uh, but you know, <laughs> I, 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 so it, that part is that part is very troubling. Um, it, but I I do think it's problematic as as a critic who is someone who is tasked with you know interpreting what's happening you know in the world and why to shut out something. I don't think is right. I guess I fall closer to where Allison Cook did with her Paul Key, Key review to yeah. say. I don't know that I wanted to go in there. I, you know, I waited longer than, and again, Paul. Yeah, Key, actually, for for context, yes, there, yeah, that was uh, Paul Key was, I guess, an Austin chef, correct, and uh, was on was a top chef one of the shows, um, yep. and was you know, and then uh, 
I, he's actually still, yeah, he was actually, did commit a crime and has been indicted. Right. I don't so think he's, he's been a, tried yet, but uh, indicted of, of battery. For that's exactly right. Right. Um, right. So a, a physical assault. Yeah. Um, which, but interestingly, not, I mean, it, it, obviously assault is never acceptable, but this is not one that occurred within his kitchen. That's right. right? That was so a domestic a event. Domestic at, event. At, you know, at home. Yep. Uh, a, a very troubling one. But again, yep. it, it's, it's yes, not about the business and it's, how he was, not he was about running the business. business. But the question came up that Allison Cook, who, because uh, writer, a uh, food writer for the Houston Chronicle, uh, Paul Key opened or was involved in opening a restaurant, I think it's called Aki in, right. in Houston. And that was the question was how long shall I wait or should I review it? Should how I long shall I wait to right. review it? And what should I say when I do? Yeah. I just think it would be so weird not to. Right. And you could go there and I think you could decide there is nothing here. There is nothing here that, that anyone needs to see or eat. And this is, you know, Paul Key is just such a, a you know, a problematic figure. It, we just need to ignore this restaurant. And you could deliver that pronouncement as a critic. But I think as a critic, you have to go. You have well, to experience if, the art. It depends on a little bit of what kind of criticism you do. But if you cover a, a beat, if right. you cover a city, you can't ignore a major restaurant <laughs> opening and just not like – I won't go pretend like it doesn't exist because this guy's – got a lot of baggage and then has done some terrible things, you, you sort of have to engage with it. Exactly. I mean, I kind of liked where Ale Scott ended up with his review about Woody Allen, excuse me, not review his piece, his kind of think piece about mm -hmm. it, which is, uh, you know, everything the man has allegedly done, and I'm, I'm not a scholar, so I don't know what he's admitted to and what he has not, but everything that he has allegedly done may cause you to stop watching the movies. It may mean some of us have to watch them again. Yeah. Right. So now, you know, you have that context. That's what a critic is supposed to provide is context. They're not supposed to hide in their room. Yeah, definitely. And this is where <laughs> like if, if I'm look, looking at, at literature, this is where I, the whole new criticism thing falls apart because I've done, you know, in, when I was doing literary scholarship, I very much got into researching authors uh, biographies and researching the history and context of the time and the city and the place they're writing about. And a, a work of literature is so much more engaging and interesting, to me at least, when you understand the context in which it takes place. Right. It's not just some static story with a couple of people. There's a reason all this is going on. I think the same thing with, with food criticism. And I think food criticism has it come a long way in, in recent years. I think food criticism is more interesting. Well, the least interesting kind of restaurant review is the one that's just like the, the a report of my visit. Mm -hmm. You know, I ate this, I ate that. Here's here's what it tasted like. I liked it or I didn't like it. Here's why. If that's all you do, that's fine. You might, you might serve, check the box on, is this a good restaurant to go to or not? But it's far more interesting if you have the context in which, like, if you're talking about a chef is a an artist of some sort, they're working in a context. They have influences. They're part of a larger trends and movements. You got to look at that to, I think, really appreciate a dining experience. And certainly, if you eat out a lot, those outside factors vastly influence oh, what huge. you experience. Right. You know? And I, I think always, I will always side with more information. Yeah. The more information, the better. I mean, that's what we want from critics. But I thought one of, you know, the most trenchant things said about this is uh, Dara Moskowitz Gormdal on Twitter said, her response to all of this was, you know, best Euro on the Upper East Side, or so I thought until three months later, I uncovered. It's like, we do this all the time. We're always declaring where to get a good corn dog or where to get a good chili dog. And it is, I am telling you, it took me four months to report a story that those in the industry would say, quote, everybody knew. Right. So how are you going to go out and check that every guy who caught your cod didn't do yeah. something horrible no, on you, the way to the restaurant? Were, I, I just don't think that's and, – and I think there's also a line there between 
um, I mean, you're a working journalist day in, day out, so mm-hmm. you're you're working a beat and, and you're working stories. There are other critics who aren't doing that, and that's fine. You don't, in other words, it's not your job as a critic to investigate the entire dining scene and look into things. However, when stuff is brought to light, you're, it is your job to know about it, about the context of what's happening around and have it. But it is my job to know what is true, not just to be up to date on like well, what yes. people are whispering about. That's my concern. And I think that's why those of us associated with newspapers may not take the eater stance, which is we're not going to write about the bad guy. Okay, did you research? So I guess this goes back to um, what LeBan referenced in his piece. Um, Voters for the James Beard Foundation um, Awards this year, and I disclosure, I am a member of the Restaurant Chef Committee, um, were asked um, to not vote, not to nominate someone if they had any concerns. Okay, concerns, concerns is kind of, you know, fuzzy. Yeah. So. Well, yeah, but so is the fuzzy notion of is this person important or is this chef Fine. cooking worthwhile? That's, yeah, I agree. I mean, it's a subjective exercise yeah. to begin with. Completely agree. But in terms of making decisions about— It doesn't know, really give you a much of a yardstick, though, to sort of measure. That's all. You know? Yeah. Yep. I think, yeah, it, yeah, having concerns is different than, than there being specific, substantiated mm-hmm. uh, details right. uh, about somebody. And I would be— I don't know. It seems like you should don't really need to advise people to not nominate people who you who you right. don't like or right. you think, or don't think are good. <laughs> right. You know, for whatever reason, it could be because of personal behavior. It could be because that person's a talented chef, but doesn't you know whatever doesn't isn't consistent or doesn't pay his bills on time right. or whatever it might sure. be. Sure. Right. Right. Um, and, and, that, the same. and that's what Craig says in his piece as well, is that we're very concerned right now about how people, you know, treat treat their employees, which is great. But we also have to remember it, at times we've been concerned about wage theft. At times mm-hmm. we've been concerned about the environmental impact a restaurant may have. You know, it's it, – Yeah, that's a good example. Yeah. Like, you know, what if there's a super talented chef who – the food tastes delicious, but right. you happen to know that he's serving like endangered bluefin tuna exactly. that's shipped around the world, yep. and, and that you know is something that's troubling. Yep. I would. I don't think I'd feel like you would. You should uh, nominate that person as a, <laughs> as a great chef, especially because right. I think so much of power, you know what food is today is trying to you know get to more interesting ingredients on on, on the culinary side, but also more sustainable. You know non. Uh, non-cruel ingredients right. as, as well. Right. So that should factor in just as much as the way you behave. Uh, if, if we worry about the the way you treat your ingredients, I think the way you treat the staff should certainly factor into Oh, absolutely. Well. But I feel like this is a, a, a I, I don't know if I've shared my latest theory, which is that the uh, farm to table movement um, is partly responsible for all the harassment in restaurants. Uh, I don't think you've shared that. Yeah. Now, <laughs> wait, before you start, let me think about that for a second. Okay, now I want to hear hear this because now I'm trying to see where. Guess I where think. You're going. Well, I mean, I, I think for obviously for one thing, it it, it prioritized ingredients pr- passively yeah. over the people who prepared them, but more saliently, I think the issue was. There was a lot of celebrating the 19th century for yeah. a little while there. And it was like, you know, if you're a really good chef, you're just going to be, you know, like out of some sort of painting of a peasant, you know, where you're like, it's the, you know, and just drinking uh, moonshine onto jugs. Remember, that was a big thing. Yes. Moonshine had its moment. Uh, uh, moon, but, thankfully, white whiskey it, it, is. Exactly. So we, we, the, we've moved past that. But yeah. the idea was if you could do things in a way that was really like earthy and, and, and you know, and you hung up your Edison bulbs. And another part of the 19th century. Yeah, there's century, some other things happened in the 19th century. <laughs> Another thing that happened was abusing women. Yeah. <laughs> like it was all part of it. And I I really think that the farm to table movement bears some responsibility.
responsibility for the lack of professionalization in the restaurant industry that has created part of this problem. I'm still (laughs) pondering that. I mean, definitely the cult of celebrity, Mm -hmm. this is not a new observation, fueled a lot of this, which is that when you sort of hold up chefs as rock stars, which for a long time that was the term, rock star chef, uh, then you're condoning the behavior of rock stars, Mm -hmm. which was often, you know, both on the like drugs and alcohol side of things, but also on the abusiveness to people. That's, you know, I think that all rolls together. Right. And and, and obviously the degree of celebrity was greater than ever before because it was magnified by Food Network and all of these things. But as you and I both know, there have been celebrity chefs for centuries. Oh, yeah, there have. I mean, this is not a new idea that 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 the chef was really, you know, all important. So, so I think that's why farm to table is what's to blame. <laughs> sticking to it. Uh, sticking to it. <laughs> I mean, I'll ponder that a little bit. But okay. You made me think. The uh, Charles. As long as I made you think. You made me, you're making me that. think about that. Because the other thing you, you, know, you mentioned, women treating women yeah. terribly. Also, there's the inconvenient things like slavery in the mm-hmm. 19th century. Uh, right. You know, if there's the other inconvenience of the Gilded Age and the fact that you had the plutocrats <laughs> were the ones driving uh, a lot of the fine dining in these just ridiculous banquets with 23 courses and all that while, you know, the the people serving it probably were mm-hmm. taking home pennies. What I thought was interesting, speaking of celebrity chefs, Charles, Charles Ranhofer, mm-hmm. who was a chef at Delmonico's yeah. in the late 19th century in New York, the great New York restaurant, he was one of the early celebrity chefs. Yeah. He wrote a book. He was, he was well-known. He was in newspaper articles. One funny thing is that the newspaper articles all focus on how much money his salary mm, was, uh-huh. which is something you don't see today. I right. mean, I guess maybe we talk about book deals or whatever yeah. that the chefs get, but I can't remember what it was, but it was something like $15,000 a year or something that he has managed to make. Uh-huh. Uh, this is during the Gilded Age when he's he is serving like, you know, these Rockefellers and the Astors and all these people mm-hmm. with millions upon millions of dollars. And the amount of money that is supposedly a a huge salary for him is so tiny <laughs> compared to the, you know, the, to the the plutocrats of the day, it just sort of highlights the fact that at that point, even the celebrity chef was still basically hired help. Uh, you know, wasn't wasn't as as much of a rock star type lifestyle as the, the chefs we have today. I, I, again, just to my point, I think had really people stuck with molecular gastronomy, I think things would have been better because to bring it back to where we were earlier in this episode, we talked about the women's exchange clubs, yep. which rose up at a time that what was being celebrated in food was cleanliness and science and looking forward, not looking backward. It was a progressive period. That is true. And molecular gastronomy, yep. the profiles of chefs was all about they're like scientists at the lab scientists. bench. They are experimenting. They are yes. dealing with chemicals and things and their and inventiveness. Look, we it's not how they throw things around <laughs> and go <laughs> hit a woman. No, it's hit not women like that. Or tackle alligators or <laughs> right. do all the things. Exactly, that, right. Know. Like you're talking about showing your brawn. It was about showing right. your Rights, right, right, and so and everything was it, it, delicate and focused and skilled. Exactly, which is very much where things were when these women's exchange clubs were coming. It was the same, similar, similar idea. Now we know that the world of science has its own serious problems. This yep. is very. I know that you know female um, female scientists do not have it easy. But I just think that sticking to science as opposed to art and all of the crazy stuff that goes with it may have been a better course. I, I am now coming around to your farm Thank to you. table. Now that I've had a chance to ponder it, and your gastronomy point brings it home because yep. the chefs there, and you know, and even Sean Brock, um, who has been through a roller coaster of a career, started off as a molecular gastronomist, 
went deep into farm to table, yep. which is when he got into bourbon and yes. boozing and drinking and has come out not too long ago with, you know, now he's on the wagon and, yep. and going to recovery. Had he stayed with the hyper-colloids <laughs> yes. and all that, maybe yeah. he wouldn't get sucked into the, that rock star driving pickup trucks and drinking a bunch of booze and all yep. the things that sort of just went hand-in-hand with the farm to table movement. All right. I think you have me solved. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to leave it at that. <laughs> I know when to walk away. So let's bring it back around. So we talked about critics. I, I think we both agree that a, a critic can't just judge the experience in isolation just from the experience in the door. You have to take the context into account. Um, no, a critic should not ne- – doesn't necessarily have to be an investigative reporter and spend every restaurant review digging in, into the you know, garbage behind the, the restaurant looking for But do for call clues. an investigative reporter if you yeah, have a good so, lead. And read what <laughs> yeah. people are, are yes, doing yes, and, yes. and listen to what people are saying. Yep. So, and that, that, has to, uh, that has to enter in. What about diners? So if we go back to, to that, we started off – it is a good point. You, uh, boycotting a restaurant just because of somebody – associated with it may not necessarily be fair to the employees, but any boycott is by its nature of a company is going to to harm the employees that work there. But uh, how else do you express that this isn't acceptable and you know, we, we won't give our money to, to, to restaurants that you know engage in these kind of behaviors? Yeah, it's tricky because in most cases, we're dealing with pretty small companies, one restaurant, two restaurants. You know, this is very different than, you know, dealing with, you know, the NRA and FedEx sort of thing. Um <laughs> Yeah, you can't you can't really express dissatisfaction by asking you know your credit card company to stop dealing with that. You know, it's not, it's not going to happen. Um, so I think like everything else, I think it's a decision you have to make for yourself. I, I well, I think it's perfectly legitimate to love the food at a restaurant but not go back because the chairs are absolutely. are hard or, or yep. the dining room's too loud and it's not a comfortable experience. Yep. And if you know with you know, and it's not just unsubstantiated rumors, but if, if there's good reason to believe that the work culture that the employees are working in, whether it's because tips are getting stolen or unfairly pooled or something like that, or if it's there's an abusive culture, uh, management culture, I think that's perfectly legitimate to say, I, I'm not comfortable Absolutely. with it. doesn't make you comfortable. Anything yeah. that makes you uncomfortable, the whole point of hospitality is to be comfortable. So this is not hospitable. And I think we are very fortunate that we live in a day and age where there is only one place where you can eat well. I mean, that's not, it's like, ah, <laughs> oh, and now I'm doomed to yep. a life of gruel. You know, it's not, you can you can cross one place off your list and you'll still yeah, do that's, okay. that's a place like Charleston, there is no limit <laughs> of no other shortage. other spots right. you, could, you could go to. And that's, and that's how you drive out of the market. I mean, I think Craig said this in the follow-up New Yorker story, you know, farm to table was successful in making people think about the ingredients to the point that now when the Cisco truck pulls up, people are like, Meh, you know, and so I think this, that that is could be where it goes with, with sexual harassment. That's just kind of understood that if you're doing your job well, you do not harass your employees. And I think we're starting to see, and again, the Patrick Properties, I think, was in the same boat as so many of these other organizations. They didn't really have an HR person. Nope, not till up, November. Up until, yeah, until— 20 years after the company seems was like so, And it always seems like when people start to realize, oh, we got a, a problem brewing, let's let's get some some help in. Yep. Um, I think restaurants are now starting to, to rethink that, uh, and we'll be, I'll be curious to see how— how that unfolds. Yep. I know it's hard for a small business. You, you know, you can't have a full-time HR person, but there are lots of options to, you know, have out, you know, f- external firms or you know, people who are helping right. you with HR issues, not part-time. But I think we'll see a lot more of that. And I think hopefully what will happen is the same thing that's happened with the sort of the general kitchen culture of the yelling, frying pan, screaming, you know, yelling, frying pan, tossing chef, that that 
that will be a thing of the past as, as well as we, as we move forward. And that's all for this edition of The Winnow. We recorded today's episode in the... Uh, Well-behaved. Well-behaved podcasting studios at the Post and Courier building in downtown Charleston, South Carolina. If you enjoyed listening to The Winnow, please help other listeners find us too. Just go to iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you download your podcasts and like us or leave a rating. The Winnow is a production of the Post and Courier and Palmetto New Media. Our producer today was the very well-behaved J.M. Murray Parker. Our theme he is not a straw man. Is sure. by the Bluestone Ramblers. Until next time, I'm Robert Moss. And I'm Hannah Raskin. Now get out there and eat. Thank you.